Hello and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I'm, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 104th episode, a returning guest is Jonathan Fowler. You first heard Jonathan Fowler on episodes 2, 10, 20, 21, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35, 43, 48, 51, 56, 64, 74, 83, 92, 102, 103, and episode 82, also featuring fellow regular guest Ash Burgess of the podcast. Jonathan graduated with a BA in history from Indiana University in 2006. He's an unabashed left-wing political junkie. He has lived and worked in South Korea for over 10 years, trying to help the citizens of that great nation hopefully talk pretty one day. And if you haven't started reading Michael Wolff's book, Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House, consider this your official warning to start now. This episode is the third in a series in which Jonathan and I will break down the entire book. And now on to the show. Hello. Hey, Chad. Hey, what's up, Bob? Hey, are you still up? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit sick here. Oh, unfortunately. Me. Yeah, me too. Yeah, the yellow dust over here has hit the micro dust. It's a total disaster. What's that? Uh, every spring, it's kind of like it causes like respiratory problems. It's a big deal. Hmm. A lot of Koreans believe it comes from China, and I think some of it does, the Gobi Desert and industrial pollution, but some portion of it also comes from local Korean pollution, I think. And, huh. uh, but every every spring it hits me, I get a, get a fever, get a cold that just won't go away for several weeks, usually no matter how much medicine I take or what I do, so. Yeah. I'm over here, if you hear me munching on something, I'm kind of eating orange pieces right now. Oh, that's fine. Trying to get that vitamin C. <laughs> But yeah, so how are you? Oh, pretty good. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty much in the same boat. I don't know if it's allergies or if I'm just sick. I'm thinking we're probably actually just sick. But right now, the uh, Bradford pear trees, which are all over the place, which are a scourge, have all started blooming. Uh, they uh, don't produce any fruit. Uh, they're just decorative, and they smell horrible. And they also like make my sinuses go crazy. Like I didn't used to get this kind of sinus reaction before this but now they just get me so it's probably a combination of being sick and that so yeah yeah who would have thought that spring would be my least favorite season <laughs> one day I did not see that coming exactly what a twist <laughs> hey happy birthday yesterday oh thanks yeah 35 so yeah um, this is the age where I officially can't keep saying early 30s. No. I've got to start transitioning. Yes. Reluctantly. <laughs> We're still in the uh, demographic, though, 18 to 35. The, oh, yeah. The, the coveted youth market, <laughs> at least for one more year. Yeah. I'm terrified of what it's going to feel like when society stops marketing to me. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Wait, this wasn't We've never... with me in mind? <laughs> yeah. Those damn jeans are too skinny. What the hell are they thinking? <laughs> Why aren't they asking my opinion? <laughs> exactly. Where's, G- where's the Jinko? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, back in my day, uh-huh. we wore baggy jeans, which I, I still... I maintain... 
I think I don't know about shirts. Shirts wise, probably right now we have better shirts and stuff, I guess. But back in the '90s, we definitely had better pants than we do now, for especially for men's styles. Mm-hmm. I think you know that won't even be controversial in 20 years. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm calling it. <laughs> Well, um, so, anyways, we, uh, yeah, the dividends of peace time over here in Korea right now, I suppose. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. It looks like the, uh, the skies may be clearing. It's all thanks to our dear leader, Trump. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> That's, perhaps that's the American perspective. I, uh, I think really? Because uh, I just read a headline in the New York Times that said most South Koreans think Trump should get a Nobel Peace Prize for his uh, his work in the peninsula there. That, that's a crock of shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I guarantee fifty South Koreans about that, and they would not agree. Um, I will say, like Moon Jae In might have, you know, he he might have said that, but he's still being diplomatic, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, and and frankly, he's being smart because if Donald Trump believes that he's getting credit for bringing peace, then he's going to be less likely to start bombing or to blow up the negotiations a couple months later when he joins, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, giving him credit. Oh wow, this peace is so amazing! Thank you, Donald Trump. And Donald, oh, did I give you peace? Uh, yeah, yeah, of course I did. Yeah, I, I love peace in the Korean Peninsula. <laughs> yes, that was my vision all along. <laughs> So, yeah, I think the president is giving him credit, but that's just because he's he's playing politics, which Donald Trump remarkably has not figured out how to do after two years of the presidency. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe the madman theory like pays off sometimes. Well, in other areas of the world, it looks like he's about to blow up the Iran nuclear. Oh, sure, area. yeah. <laughs> other areas of the world. So it's, he's... He's uh he's nuking Peter to pay Paul or something if you will to butcher yeah, the, butcher the metaphor exactly yeah so it's been yeah it's been interesting I mean a lot of people were very emotional on Friday and stuff and had a strong reaction yeah I teach people grown men cried when you know when Kim Jong Un stepped over to the south and then he invited Moon Jae In to step back over to the north and then they shook hands and all and came into mm-hmm. the South to negotiate. So it was, it was emotional and, you know, <clears throat> conservative Koreans, some of them are protesting in downtown Seoul mm-hmm. as they, you know, rightly or wrongly, perhaps wrongly. I think, you know, you got to, as the old saying goes, give a piece a chance. But I do think like we have to be clear eyed about who Kim Jong-un is, but at the same time, we have to keep in mind that you, as the saying goes, you don't, uh, you don't make peace with your friends, mm-hmm. right? You don't negotiate with your friends. You negotiate with your enemies. So mm-hmm. they're not always going to be good people. In fact, they rarely will be. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. a lot to think about, I guess. Yeah. Well, what what is the terms? It's that the U.S. will promise not to invade, and that they'll denuclearize, denuclearize, and also they want to declare an official end to the war. Yeah, something like that. I, frankly, I don't know what the requirements are in America are so far. You know, maybe they haven't been negotiated yet. Mm-hmm. 
uh, I scrolled through a bunch of the terms that had been hammered out and stuff so far, and some of them were good. Like, I think they want to get the Red Cross involved in looking into human rights stuff in North Korea, which is, you know, I think, I don't know, you know, nuclear weapons are bad and stuff, but I think, you know, nuclear weapons are a kind of beyond-the-tail situation, which, you know, the human rights, you know, maybe it may sound naive to say, but I think the human rights issue is more, you know, pressing thing. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, like, in World War II, what was worse, the Holocaust or, you know, the V-1 rockets or something were going into London every day? Mm -hmm. At the time, they probably would have said the rockets, but in retrospect, we say the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Well, the rockets were a little less uh, discriminate about who they killed. I mean, the Holocaust was very much, like, targeted, so... Yeah, well, yeah, I think, I just think it's a, I don't know, I think the, the human rights is something that, uh, I don't know, you know, they've got gulags and basically death camps up there. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, as much as they shake hands and stuff, I, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm getting more conservative in my old age, but, <laughs> you know, they're not nice people up there, some of them, I mean, the leadership and stuff, so forth. No. So were people like crying and really excited because they think this is a chance at reunification? Well, I mean, since nineteen, at least nineteen fifty-three, and maybe earlier. Well, I guess probably nineteen fifty-three. No North Korean leader has set foot in South Korea, and no South Korean president has set foot in North Korea, to my knowledge. Yeah, that's that's pretty big. So, so it's a huge step. It may be symbolic, and it may fall apart if the next leaders are conservative in South Korea. But and you know, I, I don't know. To be fair, I mean the the sunshine years under uh, Kim Dae Jung and No Mu Hyun were a time where they tried to get along more with with North Korea. And North Korea, you know, things were a little better for a while, but North Korea was still doing a lot of the stuff that they said they were not going to be still doing. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's one thing to have these meetings and have all these, you know, uh, promises. But North Korea has a pretty long record of not keeping their promises. Of course, their greatest fear is, you know, getting invaded by America. So if, if that fear lessens mm-hmm. in some way, then I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe they, maybe they'll become a little bit more rational. I mean, not rational. I mean, they are rational in some ways. I mean, what they do has been effective at preserving their their dynasty for three generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another thing that's funny about Trump trying to claim credit for it is that while these negotiations were starting, you know what I was watching from America, the news day that day? Mm-hmm. Trump calling into Fox and Friends and crying and moaning for 30 minutes and his, you know, his acolytes there or whatever just trying to get him off the phone as bad as they could. <laughs> that was... He didn't mention North Korea. He, he, wasn't, he didn't give a shit. He didn't even know what was going on probably. <laughs> He was complaining about Comey and the election and the, the you know, the popular vote and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Mueller and the probe and the no collusion and all this crap. Look, Comey is a leaker and he's a liar. And not only on this stuff, uh, he's been leaking for years. He's probably been using his friend, the so-called professor, who now turns out to have FBI at clearance, which he never said. He even lied about that because he never said that in Congress. He said he gave it to a friend. And he gave it to a friend to leak classified information. It's all classified. It was totally classified. So he illegally, he did an illegal act. 
And he said it himself, in order to get a special counsel against me. So the special counsel, and by the way, and Intelligence Committee and everybody else has found no collusion. There's no collusion with me and the Russians. Nobody's been tougher to Russia than I am. You can ask President Putin about that. There's been nobody between the military and the oil and all of the other things that I've done, the aluminum tax. They send us a lot of aluminum, and I put tariffs on aluminum coming in. The 60 uh, people that we sent out, the 60 so-called diplomats, nobody's been tougher. Nobody's even been close to us as me and we hear this nonsense go so there's no collusion whatsoever that's you know that's what he was doing on the day when you know north and south korea were taking this big step so (laughs) the one thing i'll give credit for is that i think that there is some possibility that the kind of the good cop bad cop dynamic between you know a radical right-wing president in america and a pretty far left president in south korea may have you know, shifted uh, North Korea's calculation. and But, you know, we got to remember another thing. North Korea's goal is to kind of drive a wedge between America and South Korea, and they, Trump may be giving them exactly the opportunity to do just that. Uh-huh. So, anyways, yeah, we'll, to, we'll see what happens, but I'm cautiously optimistic, but yeah. Yeah. These things have gone badly before. That's true. So you you recently got like a press award, right, of some sort? Yeah, yeah. I got a uh, on Friday. I got a award from the Indiana chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists for uh, best cover uh, coverage of uh, government or politics. So I was pretty excited for that. Okay. And I didn't know. I knew I was going to win something. To the podcast. Uh, what? <laughs> And they've been listening to the podcast. Oh, right? obviously, yeah, yeah, that was what it was for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where all that takes place. <laughs> exactly. They, they heard they heard one episode with us, and they were like, "All right, just give them all the awards." <laughs> Pulitzer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm waiting for that genius grant. That's what I'm waiting for. Okay. <laughs> but um, yeah. You know, it was a story I did about um, how uh, Eric Holcomb, who's the current governor of Indiana, um, he issued six pardons uh, in one day, and I made note of the fact that that was twice as many as Mike Pence had done in his entire four years in office. Um, Mm -hmm. And I especially highlighted a case of Keith Cooper, who uh, was an innocent man who was locked up for years for a crime he didn't commit. Um, It it was obvious that he didn't commit it. Uh, The judge and the prosecutor and everyone else basically said as much, but uh, in the waning days of the Pence administration's uh, governorship, he refused to give him a pardon uh, and uh, left it for Governor Holcomb to clean up after he got inaugurated. So uh, it was kind of a pretty stark contrast in the calculations the two people made, I guess, between when they give a pardon and when they yeah. don't. So We've been away from the fire and the fury for a long time, I guess, but, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I don't know. I've been uh, reading up a storm over here. I've reread, I just finished rereading that book, uh, The Looming Tower. Uh, oh, by Lawrence Wright. The Road to 9-11. Yeah. yeah. I think I read that in 2006 or 2000, early 2007, right before I left America. And it was an outstanding book back then. Mm-hmm. And they've recently made it into a, a series on Hulu, I guess. Oh, is that where it is? And okay, I knew they were doing something with it like that. Yeah, and I'll be real. This is 
I don't know. The show, if you had never read the book, you might like the show a lot. And I appreciate that they're making a show because I, I said back in the day that this show, this movie, this book was going to be optioned to a movie at some point. And it wasn't a movie. It was, you know, a peak TV or whatever period we're in right now. Mm-hmm. But um, the thing was, like, the, the book had an epic scale. I mean, it started in, like, the 1800s and early 1900s and stuff with the, the beginnings of Wahhabism and the idea, ideology of radical Islam and some of the early thinkers and going up through the Mujahideen and the in Afghanistan in the 1980s and the surprisingly limited role that the Arab Muslims played in that in that conflict and then how they kind of were banned from their home countries and spread out into the world after that wreaked mm. havoc all over the place and mm-hmm. you know going up through the, the embassy bombings in Africa and the coal bombing and stuff which were the two incidents that I was aware of on 9-11 when that happened and I you know with my roommate at that time from New Jersey Mm-hmm. You know, we. I said, I wonder if this was Osama bin Laden. And he said, who? <laughs> I said, oh, well, he's, he's done a few other things over the past couple of years. But just, you know, these all, all these incidents that we kind of get lost in the memory hole or something. But mm-hmm. he goes into incredible detail about with people, just interviews with people. I don't know how he got the interviews and stuff. But mm-hmm. So, like, the first half of the book doesn't even mention uh, too much about the CIA or the FBI and their lack of intelligence sharing issues that led to, you know, just people, you know, the left hand not knowing what the right hand was doing while the terrorists were in the country and stuff, mm-hmm. which the CIA knew about, but they didn't share with the FBI who would have been, would have been keen on making some arrests there. Right. But so they focused on that aspect. They didn't focus on the, the whole backstory, which was an incredible backstory with remarkable parallels to the main character. So, um, so that was that was an outstanding book to reread. I really it was, it was by the you know the farther you read along in it, the faster you start reading because it's just building and building and building. Mm-hmm. Can't recommend that book enough. But yeah, did uh, it go so, into the uh, Saudi connection at all? Yeah, yeah, it has a history of the modern you know Saudi kingdom and how they how they came to be the way they are to some degree. It was it was good. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and just kind of the, the, I guess you could say the Faustian bargain or whatever that they made with, uh, with the Wahhabi radical Islamists in their own country, mm-hmm. which was a- actually after they had a guy, I mean, they had radical corruption. And then at one point, this guy went and took over the, the Grand Mosque there and took a bunch of prisoners. He, he, I mean, he killed... He killed, uh, I want to say he killed the uh, the previous king, I guess, I think, or one of the religious leaders or something. And then they said that, uh, God, I don't know, it was a, it was early in the book and stuff, and it's kind of a blur now, but but they held this, they held the Grand Mosque for several days, and they the Saudis tried to take it back several times, but just got a bunch of people killed. Mm-hmm. And finally they got that guy, they captured him, they retook it, and they, you know, executed him and a lot of other people. And then they basically realized that, like, as long as we're going to be a corrupt, corrupt, money-wasting monarchy, we've got to at least give the people as much religion as they want so that we can channel this uh, this this anti-corruption stuff away from ourselves, basically. And so that seemed to be the, the principle that they were operating on up until... Hmm. 
9-11. Although they were not big fans of Osama bin Laden because he was causing instability in a lot of other Arab countries. You know, he was targeting Egypt quite a lot because of, uh, what's his name, Zawahiri, Ayman al-Zawahiri. I can't pronounce his name. Um, he was Egyptian, mm-hmm. and so they were they were focused quite a bit on that. But so it's an amazing story. I strongly, strongly recommend reading it. It's so good. Cool. Yeah, I read um, the Scientology book that guy wrote. I thought it was really good. Okay. Yeah, I saw that documentary. Yeah, I didn't see that. Yeah, I didn't see the documentary. Yeah, I heard it was good. Yeah. Rocky people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how people find themselves in these cults. I think it was easier before the internet. You know, because then they didn't tell you about Xenu and stuff before, you know, you joined. I think it was like, kind of like surprise. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I think I would have bounced before Xenu. (laughs) But you've already given them all your money and they already know all your secrets now. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, have we better have we better go into the go into the fire and fury here today. Yeah. My my concern is, I don't know, with my with my uh, kind of like I'm going into I'm practically going into a fever state over here after all day of having this like kind of like this gunk in my throat or whatever my nasal passages from the damn pollution over here. Mm. And so I don't know how long my strength is going to hold out, but I don't know. We did we did chapter one, two, three. Did we do four? Let's see what we're at here. Let me look at the chapter list. Uh, so chapter three was day one. Chapter four was Bannon. Chapter five was Jarvanka. Um, did we? I don't know that we got to Jarvanka. Did we? Let me let me look. I think we may have only gotten to chapter three because I think the first time we just did chapters one and two, maybe. Let me look. Yeah, it feels like the second one was kind of like a fast one. Well, let me go to the end of the chapter. We're gonna have to edit this part, I guess. Yeah, I think I think the chapter three is about where we got. Okay, yeah, I think so. So we're on chapter four? Yeah, I think so. I think we can start here. All right, so this is the Bannon chapter. Yeah. Although there's a lot of Bannon throughout it. <laughs> there sure is. Um, so how does he open it up here? He says, Steve Bannon was the first Trump senior staffer in the White House after Trump was sworn in. On the inauguration march, he had grabbed the newly appointed deputy chief of staff, Katie Walsh, Ryan's previous deputy at the RNC. Together, they had peeled off to inspect the now vacant West Wing. Isn't that a creepy image? <laughs> this evil bastard, like just like kind of going around the White House unsupervised. <laughs> I think they talk about how he like takes he takes a certain room that he wants to have for his own office or something, while nobody else is there to claim it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Bannon claimed the nondescript office across from the much grander chief of staff's suite, 
and he immediately requisitioned the White House whiteboards on which he intended to chart the first hundred days of the Trump administration. And right away, he began moving furniture out. The point was to leave no room for anyone to sit. There was to be there were to be no meetings, and at least no meetings where people could get comfortable. Uh, limit discussion, limit debate. This was war. This was a war room. Okay, what a drama queen. <laughs> so he wants a, he wants his whiteboards like Glenn Beck, I guess. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Within the first week, Bannon seemed to have put away the camaraderie of Trump Tower, including a willingness to talk at length at any hour and and become far more remote, if not unreachable. And certainly among his basic character notes, Steve Bannon was a plotter. I think I'm a plotter, too. But I hope I'm not evil. (laughs) Um... Let's see, the first goal was the election of Donald Trump, and the second, the staffing of the Trump government. Now it was capturing the soul of the Trump White House, and he understood what others did not yet. This would be a mortal competition. So he's just kind of getting ready. (laughs) Uh, In the early days of the transition, Trump, or Bannon, had encouraged the Trump team to read David Halberstrom's Best and the Brightest, one of the few people who seem actually to have taken him up on this reading assignment was Jared Kushner. <laughs> so, so Jared Kushner is still like trying to be his friend at the beginning here and stuff. Uh-huh. Poor Jared. <laughs> yeah. Probably going to jail. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Yeah, Halberstam's book, published in 1972, is a Tolstoyan effort to understand how great figures of the academic, intellectual, and military world who had served during the Kennedy and Johnson years had so grievously misapprehended the nature of the Vietnam War and mishandled its prosecution uh, down below. But the book also served as a reverential guide to the establishment. The Best and the Brightest was a handbook about the characteristics of, turning a page here, American power and the routes to it. Not just the right schools and the right backgrounds, although that too, but the attitudes, conceits, effect, and language that would be most conducive to finding your way into the American power structure. Many saw the book as a set of prescriptions about how to get ahead rather than, as intended, what not to do when you are ahead. The best and the brightest describe the people who should be in power. Uh, College-age Barack Obama was smitten with the book, as was Rhodes Scholar Bill Clinton. Um... something about, they talk a little bit about the kind of writing that goes on about the White House, which I think is, I think this description, this next paragraph of his is very uh, good. Yeah, like, have you read, have you ever read like Bob Woodward books at all? No, I haven't read the books, no. Okay, I've read a couple of his about, uh, about the Bush years. I think he had like a trilogy and I probably read them all in college or 
something. Mm. One was called, uh, what was it, Fiasco or something or something like that. Uh, hmm. I forget what they were. Like, the first two were supposedly somewhat supportive and understanding, and the third one was like about how things fell apart or something. It was hmm. very soothing to some degree. But but in all of them, and in that, that entire, I think, genre, there's kind of this kind of like this kind of knowing... Um, way that they make these people seem like intimately reasonable people who are just, you know, doing, you know, the best that they can and that they know what they're doing and with the knowledge they have, they're doing the right thing. You know, it kind of assumes a certain, I don't know, teleological aspect or something. I, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling here in my fever, fever <laughs> situation, but um. Yeah, I see. I see what you're saying, though. I've I've never read them, but I think I get the gist of what what you mean. Yeah, yeah it's like Trump, or Bush made a bad decision, but here's what he was thinking when he made the decision. So he was thinking something, and so he was coming to a logical conclusion based on what he. No, no, it doesn't follow that. That's that. This is the only way it could have gone. You know, there were other paths that smart people, you know, reasonable people saw different outcomes. So, but. Um, let me go back to my book and figure out what, what this guy said about it Wolf oh um, speaking of Wolf did you watch the uh, the comedian's monologue at the uh, White House Correspondents Dinner I know you said on Facebook that you never watched those or something well I think I think it's the whole thing is an embarrassment and I think they should just cancel that dinner because it just looks bad for everybody especially the journalists that are there supposed to be covering these people and then they're acting all chummy with them and it's all in good fun and blah 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 but um, yeah I saw that there was a lot, like a lot of blowback because she like went after Sarah Huckabee Sanders but thing is I think her and Sean Spicer and everybody else that knows better that chills for these people should be just you know they should be mocked everywhere they go for the rest of their lives like they should never be allowed to live this down like you know should never allow them back into polite society and we should make them feel very bad for what they've done to the truth and you know america and everything else you know and i just can't believe that the people defending trump are the ones that are oh my gosh why would you and meanwhile he's you know made fun of you know a disabled reporter and you know just go down the list of everyone he's mocked and you know they didn't bat yeah. an eye for that, but yeah. the The only part that I thought where she might have possibly gone a little bit low was where she said something about she lies and then she burns it up or something. And she makes eyeshadow and she gives herself a shady eye or something like that, or, like, or something like that. So okay. Wasn't it a smoky eye? Smoky eye. I don't. What is does smoky eye have some meaning that I'm not familiar with? Uh, no. I, I think it's just like that really dramatic, like, eyeliner that people do, like, I guess. So, I don't know. That's that's my I thought, understanding. I thought it was... And then she said something like, maybe she's, maybe she's born with it, maybe it's lies or something. It's probably lies or something. And, but the thing... But what I was kind of like, I don't know if I was trying to read between the lines a little bit too much, but I felt like she might have been making fun of Sarah Huckabee Sanders for having, like, a lazy eye or whatever that she has. And that was the only thing that I thought where she kind of sort of might have possibly gone a little bit low. Hmm. But at the same time, I don't really care because, you know, if Donald Trump makes fun of somebody for anything, you can guarantee Sarah Huckabee Sanders will be out there telling you why it's okay that he said what he said. So Yeah. But I don't know. You had several jokes that were controversial. 
uh, about abortion, about the media. You said something about Kellyanne Conway that I expected to cause more controversy than it actually caused. Um, but the, as we record uh, early in the morning on Monday, the most controversial joke has been about Sarah Sanders. So I want to play what you said about Sarah Sanders. We are graced with Sarah's presence tonight. I have to say I'm a little starstruck. I love you as Aunt Lydia and the Handmaid's Tale. Mike Pence, if you haven't seen it, you would love it. Every time Sarah steps up to the podium, I get excited because I'm not really sure what we're going to get. You know, a press briefing, a bunch of lies, or divided into softball teams. It's shirts and skins, and this time, don't be such a little bitch, Jim Acosta. I actually really like Sarah. I think she's very resourceful. Like, she burns facts, and then she uses that ash to create a perfect smoky eye. Like, maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's lies. It's probably lies. So it was Michelle Wolf. Saturday night at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. So a lot of people thought that you were attacking Sarah Sanders for her looks. I don't really like to put you in the position of having to dissect your joke, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyways. What was your intention with the joke? (laughs) Um, I think people have a lot of preconceived notions about Sarah's looks, um, and um, I think a lot of what's happening is they're projecting... uh, they're projecting under this joke. Um, I made a conscious effort not to write any jokes about any woman's looks in this speech. Um, and, you know, I think it's clear that the joke wasn't about Sarah's looks, but I don't think, you know, it's it, to me it's so obvious that I don't even really need to defend it. Um, I think if you listen to the joke, you'll understand that it's about the fact that she lies um, and if it's taken another way, I think you should go back and listen to it again. So when you mention her eyeliner, are you criticizing her eyeliner? And if so, if, is criticizing her eyeliner different than criticizing how she looks? I said she had a perfect smoky eye. So I was complimenting her eyeliner because um, it's fine. Her makeup's fine. <laughs> it's the fact that she uses... I was saying she uses, she burns facts and she uses lies for her smoky eye. So you also compared her to the Aunt Lydia character on A Handmaid's Tale. And for for any listeners who don't watch A Handmaid's Tale, and imagine there's a lot of people who don't watch it, uh, would you describe the character of Aunt Lydia? And and Aunt Lydia is played by Anne Dowd. Yeah, the character of Aunt Lydia is kind of the mouthpiece for the administration in, in The Handmaid's Tale. She's the woman that kind of um, is in charge of all the handmaids and um, is kind of like the sergeant, so to speak. Um, and she's the one that enforces all the rules. Uh, and, and the rules have to do with... Women had to be trained to serve, to be handmaids, and to be fertile and carry, you know, uh, uh, be pregnant as often as possible because that is their role. Yeah, the role of handmaids in The Handmaid's Tale is essentially like um, uh, pregnancy slaves, I guess. I don't know a better word for it, Um, where they're just supposed to – they're supposed to produce and have babies. Um, 
against their will, essentially. And I was commenting on how her actions for the Trump administration are similar to Aunt Lydia's in The Handmaid's Tale. Um, she communicates from the president just like Aunt Lydia communicates the objectives of the the society. So uh, some people think that that part was also insulting to Sarah Sanders' looks. Um, and in some ways, if you were insulting her looks by comparing her to Ann Dowd, would you be insulting Ann Dowd as well? Yeah, which is very unfair. Ann Dowd's gorgeous. <laughs> um, and she's a very talented actress, which I think is more important. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think to, to, to look at that and say I was insulting Sarah's looks, you had to think, you had to want me to be insulting Sarah's looks. I mean, it's like, I was talking about her personality, and I think it says a lot about our society that you would immediately think I was talking about her looks rather than her personality. Because I think if it was a man, you wouldn't have jumped to those conclusions. If I was talking about a man, you would have been like, she's talking about his abilities. But because I was talking about a woman, you're like, she's talking about her looks. So you're in the position now of being a feminist comic, getting criticized by other women, including some very powerful, incredibly smart women, for doing something sexist, for criticizing a woman for her looks. And you say, like, no, that's not what I did. Listen more more carefully. But how does it feel to be a feminist being, you know, criticized by other women in addition to a lot of men who are criticizing you as well? I mean, isn't that sort of what we do as women, <laughs> unfortunately? Um you know, we uh, we're well. No, well, I'd enemy. say that the women see themselves as as standing up for another woman. You, you know, they're they're standing up for. They, they, I think they see themselves as defending Sarah Sanders against um, a, a, a careless or you know inappropriate joke. I mean, I think they should listen to the joke again because it's clearly not about her appearance. Um, I'm wondering if you think it's maybe a little bit sexist. Do you think that Sarah Sanders as a woman needs to be protected from a couple of jokes at a roast? Because I haven't heard men be protected that way at roast. Yeah, I mean, if there was two people that I um, actually made fun of their looks on Saturday, it was Mitch McConnell and Chris Christie. <laughs> um, and no one is jumping to their defense. Um, I made fun of Mitch McConnell's neck, and I did a small jab at Chris Christie's weight, um, and no one, no one is jumping to their defense. I don't know. I don't know what her qualifications were to be the White House spokesperson, press spokesperson or whatever before she became that thing. I mean, aside from being, uh, what's his name? Mike Huckabee's daughter. Mm-hmm. I think she was just uh, a randomly political consultant or something that decided that it was worth it to shred whatever credibility she had to do this job so yeah. light her reputation on fire yeah i don't know i, I feel zero sympathy i'm having a hard time working up any sympathy for for her so yeah the, the only possible sympathy i feel is the fact that she and these other people some of them showed up and donald trump doesn't even have the guts to show up that thing and so He's really, I mean, not that they wouldn't have been made fun of if he had shown up, but they would not have been some of the primary targets, you know, because they were there and stuff. So, Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, so they, you know, they followed orders and went to this thing when the president, his too thin skinned 
just show up like everybody else does. Yeah, well, if you're going to show up, expect some heat, you know, so that's, that's what happens. Yeah, so. especially if you're excusing the inexcusable day in and day out. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I'm not convinced that it doesn't have any, I, I do think like, yeah, there is a certain chumminess that is kind of, you know, it's hard to stomach when, you know, real people out there are suffering from the policies that some of these people try to push. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess uh, Mika Brzezinski and uh, Maggie Haberman from the New York Times and a couple other people were rushing to Sarah Sanders' defense, and it's like, this is why you're the problem <laughs> with what's going on. This yeah. access journalism is just like we've talked about before. It's just, it's got to go away. I mean, this is this is ridiculous. It's like, why are you defending yeah, these people? Yeah. You should be making these people feel bad every day. Like, this is what you should be doing. You should be holding their feet to the fire, not coddling them. Yeah, well, I think Mika Brzezinski is, right now, she's just hypersensitive to any criticism of a woman. Mm-hmm. And she perceives that as because, as negative criticism because they're a woman or something, or like something that a man wouldn't get. Because she did the same thing to with the author of this book, Michael Wolf. When yeah, I had that clip play on one of the previous in, episodes, yeah. Yeah, when he insinuated that, who was it? Uh, uh, Nikki, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley. May have had an affair with Trump or something, which you know, God, who knows? I don't want to get a, I don't want to get a libel lawsuit, but I mean, I, I don't know about her, but the idea of Trump having an affair with somebody in the White House is not beyond the pale. So, yeah, this isn't know. exactly science fiction here. I think that we could probably imagine a scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but Mika Brzezinski jumped down this Michael Wolf guy's throat on that issue, and I was like, whoa. I mean, come on. You've, you've been riding the, the press wave off this book for two weeks now, and now you're going to get self-righteous with this guy? Yeah. Uh, it was funny. Yeah. Another uh, regular guest of the Rob Burgess Show, Sarah Kensinger, was on uh, Morning Joe the other day. It's a failure. Sarah talks about the failures. You can go back. You know, we've done it before. Uh, you know, 99, impeachment, 2000, recount, 2001. I mean, you literally can go every year and you can find one institution after another institution after another institution that's failed. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Um, You know, nonetheless, though, that doesn't uh, completely explain or certainly excuse his rise. I think when somebody like Trump launches his campaign on hatred, when he launches it on um, you know targeting Mexicans on day one and going on to denigrate all these groups, going on to lie, going on to embrace right. explicitly corrupt um, policies, then you know people have an obligation to speak out. The media does, the GOP right. does, and we still have that obligation. Well, today. and it goes back to Jeremy Peters' reporting because I mean when you look at and especially with your expertise, um, but also this book, we understand. Understand, Joe and I. We understand on this set how he be, how he was elected, why he was elected. Sure, he even do. thought he could be elected. Now, Sarah Kinzinger, she's the one who talks about fascism on your show, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like her episodes. I always listen to her episodes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she'll be back on again soon. I just got a new book out. I'm gonna read it and talk to her about it soon. So, cool. Yeah, the book called uh, "The View from Flyover Country." Oh, okay. Is this kind of like that one guy's book? Uh, what's it called? Uh, Hillb- Hillbilly, Hillbilly Elegy. Elegy or I think it probably oh, comes okay. to a different conclusion, but yes, I think it's probably similar. <laughs> okay. No, I, I said Hillbilly Eulogy. Eulogy. Elegy, right? <laughs> I think it was Elegy. I don't know. <laughs> it might be you. <laughs> I've got, got to wait a couple more years for the eulogy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Maybe not long in Trump world. Yeah, right. But, um, okay, so anyways, let's, I mean, and, and that's not a politically incorrect joke because we're from Trump country. We're from oh, yeah. Country, I'm in so. Trump country at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to Trump country in my mind. To paraphrase an old song. Um, let's see. So what does this guy, this guy talks about a certain kind of journalistic uh, books that talk about the White House. And he says, um, Halberstrom's book defined the look and feel of White House power. His language, resonant and imposing, and often bofo pompous, I don't know what that means, it's like Italian or something, um, had set the tone for the next half century of official presidential journalism. Even scandalous or unsuccessful tenants of the White House were treated as unique figures who had risen to the greatest heights after mastering a Darwinian political process. Bob Woodward, who helped bring Nixon down and who himself became a figure of unchallengeable presidential myth-making, wrote a long shelf of books in which even the most misguided presidential accents seemed part of an epochal march of ultimate responsibility and life-and-death decision-making. Only the most hard-hearted reader would not entertain a daydream in which he or she was not part of this awesome pageant. Uh, Steve Bannon was such a daydreamer. <laughs> but I, I really like that. I really like that because I, I noticed the same thing when I've read Woodward books before. Is like you feel like you're there in the room with them and you know, you're part of the decision-making process. And like there is a certain romanticism to that. It's like, wow, we're... we're this is how it goes down. This is where the big decisions get made. And God, I didn't like it, but you know, maybe, uh, maybe with finale, you know, you, you get sucked into this kind of this idea that this is the way things had to go. Right. And yeah. you would have been there and done a similar thing perhaps, or sure. it would have been an honor just to be in the room or something. Or, right. And, and so, yeah. And that, yeah, that, that aspect has always kind of struck me as weird. And I noticed it in myself too. Like I, you know, you, I don't know. It's a weird thing. You, you find yourself getting sucked into the, the you know the cabinet level melodrama of the Bush White House, and you're like you're you're kind of you've got your favorite in this corner or something on a certain issue and whatever. I, I I don't know. It's been a decade since I've read those books, but mm-hmm. uh, I noticed it back then. So yeah. Uh, but continuing, he says, but if Halberstrom defined the presidential mean, 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 I don't know how to pronounce that, actually. Hmm. Trump defied it and defiled it. Not a single attribute would place him credibly in the revered circle of American presidential character and power, which was, in a curious reversal of the book's premise, just what had created, just what created Steve Bannon's opportunity. So they're saying that the, the absence of basically everything that was in this best and brightest book is what gave him the chance to get into the White House. Yeah. Um, I was also surprised to learn um, his on page thirty fifty six um, his credentials included suddenly included a convoluted story about how Bannon and company had acquired a stake in the mega hit show Seinfeld and hence its 20 year run of residual profits. Yeah. I remember hearing that. 
and say, but none of the Seinfeld principals, creators, or producers seem ever to have heard of him. So who knows what happened there? Mm-hmm. Apparently, like when the Washington Post was trying to uh, research who this Steve Bannon guy was and where he came from, they they said the Washington Post traced his many addresses to no clear conclusion, except a, po- a suggestion of possible misdemeanor voter fraud. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, in the mid '90s, he inserted himself in a significant role into Biosphere Two. Mm-hmm. A project copiously funded by Edward Bass, one of the Bass family oil heirs, and about sustaining life in space, and dubbed by Time one of the hundred worst ideas of the century, a rich man's folly. Yeah. Bannon, having to find his opportunities in distress situations, stepped into the project amid its collapse, only to provoke further breakdown in litigation, including harassment and vandalism charges. So I'm sure that's a fascinating story. What the hell happened with the with the bio biosphere <laughs> right. harassment and vandalism? <laughs> uh, after the biosphere two disaster, he participated in raising financing for a virtual currency scheme. Hmm. Um, MMORPGs or MMOs. Um, which is where I guess he eventually wound up getting involved in World of Warcraft, which is amazing. I don't know how that worked out, but mm-hmm. well, that eventually led to uh, Gamergate. I think his involvement with that wasn't it. Was he involved in Gamergate? I don't know. Well, Gamergate was like very much, I think, post uh, post World of Warcraft. But it was- no, but I think that was his introduction to the world of video games or whatever, and I think that's where he like met that Milo Yiannopoulos guy, and then I think that's where the Gamergate thing took off from there, or his involvement with it anyway. Yeah, I yeah I was aware of Gamergate at the time, um, and you know I thought there were decent arguments on both sides, but at a certain point, I don't know, man. <laughs> Talking about Gamergate, you know, this is we're getting in some dicey waters here. <laughs> I don't know. I think I feel like it's the same thing that happens with like a lot of people, you know, like Jordan Peterson and Hmm. Gamergate and a lot of these things like they may in some sense have a certain point that they're making that's correct, but they just attract a caliber of people who are, you know, self-righteous and dogmatic and, you know, don't correctly state both sides of the argument and, Hmm. you know, have right wing leanings that very quickly come to the surface that, it makes it impossible to, you know, really be on board with him for the for the issues where they may have a point. So, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. I don't know, but yeah, I was, you know, it's bizarre to think that Steve Bannon was involved with Seinfeld and and you know, and World of Warcraft at all. Yeah. So. Um. see one they're describing the way people take him the way people see van and they say one competitor in the conservative media business while acknowledging his intelligence and the ambitiousness of his ideas also noted he's mean dishonest and incapable of caring about other people his eyes dart around like he's always looking for a weapon with which to bludgeon or gouge you (laughs) It's it's a really weird description of a person yeah Let's see. Uh, and they talk about what's more, corporate media, or sorry, conservative media. It's a 
highly lucrative target market category with books often dominating the bestseller lists, uh, videos, and other products um, available through direct sales avenues that can circumvent most expensive distribution channels. So they're talking about how, how I don't know. Uh, the profitability, I guess, of going into right-wing media as opposed to left-wing media. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think about what we're hearing about Jeff or about the uh, uh, about this guy so far, Steve Bannon? Steve Bannon. Yeah, he seems like he's been on like the shadows and the kind of the edges of pop culture for a while, and he's never really had a. A, hit, a bona fide hit of his own. It seems like he's kind of leached on to a few things that had some success, but I don't know. This seems like he was just looking for a, looking for something to ride to to glory, and it seems like Trump was his vehicle. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of like the old turd flower, <laughs> Carl Rove. <laughs> Yes, that's true. Wouldn't it turd blossom? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What did what did Tupac Shakur say? Pour some liquor. The rose that grew from concrete. What about the blossom that grew from turd? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jordan W was a poet. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, anyways, I don't know. This feverish feverishness is overtaking me here, but I'm continuing. And yet, I fight on. <laughs> and yet, he persisted. Okay. Yeah, indubitably. Okay. Um, let's see. Continuing. Bannon was not so much an entrepreneur of vision or even business discipline. He was more simply following the money or trying to separate a fool from his money. He could not have been better than Bob and Rebecca Mercer, who had set themselves up as almost professional fools. Uh, Bannon focused his entrepreneurial talents on becoming courtier, courtier, uh, Singali, and political investment advisor to father and daughter. Theirs was a consciously quixotic mission. They would devote vast sums, albeit still just a small part of the Bob Mercer's many billions, to trying to build a radical free market, small government, homeschooling, anti-liberal, gold standard, pro-death penalty, anti-Muslim, pro-Christian, monetarist, and civil rights political movement in the United States. Uh, Bob Mercer is an ultimate quant. I don't know what that means. I think it just means somebody who's only concerned with data and has no life outside of, like, numbers and stuff. (laughs) You know what that means? God, what a quant. (laughs) (laughs) Bleep, bloop, bloop. (laughs) All right. I don't know where we're going here. Um, So so anyways, yeah, well, we learn, you know, by, uh, I don't know. Sorry, I'm I'm spiraling here. <laughs> um, yeah, Bob Mercer is an ultimate quant, an engineer who designs investment algorithms, and became a, a co CEO CEO of one of the most successful hedge funds, Renaissance Technologies. 
With his daughter, Rebecca, Mercer set up what is, in effect, a private Tea Party movement, self-funding whatever Tea Party or alt-right projects took their fancy. Father and daughter are far out on the odd spectrum. Bob Mercer is almost nonverbal, looking at you with a dead stare, neither not talking or offering only minimal response. He had a Steinway baby grand on his yacht. Uh, After inviting friends and colleagues on the boat, he would spend the time playing the piano, wholly disengaged from his guests, and yet his political beliefs, to the extent that they could be discerned, were generally Bush-like. And his political discussions, to the extent that you could get him to be responsive, were about issues involving ground game and data gathering. It was Rebecca Mercer who had bonded with Bannon and whose politics were grim, unyielding, and doctrinaire, who defined the family. Uh, With the death of Andrew Breitbart in 2012, Bannon, in essence holding the proxy of the Mercer's investment on the site, took over the Breitbart business. He leveraged his gaming experience into using Gamergate, a precursor alt-right movement that coalesced around an antipathy toward and harassment of women working in the online gaming industry, to build vast amounts of traffic through the virality of political memes. After hours one night in the White House, Spanner would argue that he knew exactly how to build a Breitbart for the left, and he would have the key advantage because people on the left want to win Pulitzers, whereas I want to be Pulitzer. Okay. Oh, this guy. What a, what a drama queen. Mm-hmm. It was like somebody who watched Scarface one too many times or something. And took all the wrong lessons from it. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Uh, let's see. We're continuing to talk about the Mercers. Oh, wait. Or maybe Bannon. Uh, but, but a seeming measure of his marginality was that his big project was the career of Jeff Sessions. Beauregard, Sessions' middle name, and Bannon's affectionate moniker and evocation of the Confederate general, among the least mainstream and most peculiar people in the Senate whom Bannon tried to promote to run for president in 2012. Many of Trump's positions in the campaign were taken from the Breitbart articles he had printed out for him. Oh, my. Yeah, and then they continue. Bannon didn't much question Donald Trump's bona fides or behavior or electability because, in part, Trump was just his latest rich man. (laughs) The rich man is a fixed fact, which you have to accept and deal with in an entrepreneurial world, at least a lower-level entrepreneurial world. And, uh, of course, if Trump had firmer bona fides, better behavior, and clear electability, Bannon would not have had his chance. Hmm. They say there was no competition in Trump Tower for being the brains of the operation. (laughs) (laughs) Of the dominant figures in the transition, neither Kushner, Priebus, nor Conway, and certainly not the president-elect, had the ability to express any kind of coherent perception or narrative. By default, everybody had to look to the voluble, aphoristic, shambolic, witty, 
off-the-cuff figure who was both ever-present on the premises and who had, in an unlikely attribute, read a book or two. Um, the path to victory was an economic and cultural message to the white working class in Florida, Ohio, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Hmm. <laughs> so we're kind of getting getting a little bit of backstory about the guy leading up to his being, uh, yeah, latching on to Trump in this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, any, any thoughts? I realize I'm just kind of reading and rambling here. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's probably true. I mean, I don't think anyone else had, like, the energy of Steve Bannon or the, like, like they said, I mean, even though he's got, like, terrible ideas and, like you say, he's a drama queen and everything, I mean, he really is the only game in town as far as, like, book learning goes in that circle. So I think he probably held a certain amount of sway whether, you know, he would have in other situations or not. Probably not. I mean, this is probably the one situation where he could be a leading light or whatever. So Yeah. I don't know. It's an interesting position to find yourself in because I, I don't think I'd want to be the president. But wouldn't it be fun in a way if you were like the tr- the president's trusted thinker and you could basically manipulate the president to do what you wanted all the time? I mean, that be, I mean it's, it's terrible for democracy, but isn't that like almost better than being in the spotlight yourself? You know, having to defend your ideas, the puppet master, as man behind the throne. Well, it's, I mean, I, I, you know, to some degree, I think he's a reprehensible person, but yeah, if you find yourself in a position where you well, you know, you, you're doing all these terrible things, but you think that those are good things to do. And you've got a president who respects and listens to you and follows your advice and basically cannibalizes his worldview from you. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, obviously that's irresponsible and it's a scary situation if you really think about the implications of it. But yeah, it would be tempting. <laughs> if your ideas politically were things that you did not think you could get done through any legitimate method of, you know, running on them or whatever. So. Right, exactly. So, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know what I'm saying here, but I'm, I'm just saying, like, I, I think, you know, taking taking into account all the, 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 you know, wrongness of everything he's doing, I think I can understand how he... He saw this chance and he just grabbed it. He grabbed those coattails and held on for as long as he damn well could. Mm-hmm. You know, like a bucking bronco. He got knocked <laughs> off eventually. But. Well, he got knocked off by the Mercers, too, after this book. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah, no, it's it's like, I, I hear what you're saying. It's, it's more fun to have the power than the fame. Yeah. Or at least it's more consequential. So. Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, continuing on here, perhaps, I think we've got a couple pages left in this, uh, mm-hmm. this chapter. Oh, Bannon collected enemies. Few fueled his savagery and rancor toward the standard-issue Republican world as much as Rupert Murdoch. Not least because of Bannon's understanding of Trump. Ah, sorry, not least because Murdoch had Donald Trump's ear. It was one of the key elements of Bannon's understanding of Trump. The last person Trump spoke to ended up with enormous influence. Murdoch, for his part, would complain that he couldn't get Trump off the phone. <laughs> it sounds like a Fox and Friends problem. It sounds like a persistent problem with Fox. We can't get Trump off the phone. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, he doesn't know anything about Ameri- American politics, and he has no feel for the American people, said Bannon to Trump, always eager to point out that, the, that Murdoch wasn't an American. But Trump couldn't get enough of it. With his love of winners, he, and he saw Murdoch as the ultimate winner, Trump was suddenly bad-mouthing his friend Ailes as a loser. Um, yeah, other things, other things that Bannon believed. The president really only had a maximum six months to make an impact on the public and set his agenda. And he'd be lucky to get six months. After that, it was just putting out fires and battling the opposition. Uh, this was the message whose urgency Bannon himself had been trying to impress on an often distracted Trump. Indeed, in his first weeks in the White House, an inattentive Trump, an inattentive Trump head was already trying to curtail his schedule of meetings, limit his hours in the office, and keep his normal golf habits. Bannon's strategic view of government was shock and awe, dominate rather than negotiate. Having daydreamed his way into ultimate bureaucratic power, he did not want to see himself as a bureaucrat. There was a moral order in aligning language and action. If you said you were going to do something, you'd do it. Yeah, anyways, yeah, I think it's funny that he, he used the, the first six months of a presidency as a crucial time, and Trump's like, yeah, this, you know, the inauguration is fun, but now I just want to get back by, back to my regular life. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 this is the time to get it all done. <laughs> We've got 100 days to ruin everything, hurry. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, sorry, 100 days, not six months, I'm... Getting things mixed up, but yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a funny dynamic. To have mm-hmm. Such a lowly motivated person as the president, I guess. Well, why don't we, why don't we make a mighty push? Yeah, I'll finish Three. this chapter. Three more pages, five more pages, something. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Have you had any response on Twitter or other people reading this too mm-hmm. at all? Yeah, yeah, I got a couple of people on Twitter retweeting this when I tweeted out. So I think people are reading along. I'm gonna okay. see if I can get Michael Wolf at the end here. <laughs> oh boy, I don't know. He's probably gonna kill us for <laughs> reading the reading entire book on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, Michael Wolf, if you need somebody to record the uh, the uh, the audio book, uh, call me back when I don't have my cold. Yeah, right, right. I'm, kidding, I'm sure I'm not who he wants. He'll give a dramatic reading. But, You'll even do voices, right? We do voices. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my Trump impersonation may not be the best, but I make a strong effort. <laughs> Um, yeah. Um, let's see here. Bannon had delved deeply into the nature of executive orders, EOs. You can't rule by decree in the United States, except you really can. Kind of a disturbing thing. Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess when Congress doesn't work anymore, that's when it's, you know, more of a necessity. Now, in something of a zero-sum game, Trump's executive orders would undo Obama's executive orders. Uh, Bannon's, um, let's see, uh, Stephen Miller, 
He'd become Bannon's effective assistant and researcher, assembled a list of more than 200 executive orders to issue in the first 100 days. Um, Later, the Trump campaign became a sudden opportunity to see if nativism really had legs. And then when they won, Bannon understand there could be, understood there could be no hesitation about declaring their ethnocentric heart and soul. To boot, it was an issue that made liberals batshit mad. Again, I think, like, um, this is another case where I think that uh, Michael Wolff's political views would be interesting to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, white ethno-central nationalism is not something you can play around with. It's, I mean, right. you think it's cute that it pisses liberals off or that, you know, there are real-world consequences for non-white people, mm-hmm. you know, in a world where this is the governing philosophy. Well, you know, you may be a little bit too into that, that Washington horse race rather than the, you know... The outcomes, I guess, right. of, uh, policy. So I, I, I think that would be an interesting thing to talk to Michael Wolf about if you ever had a chance. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I know he's probably going to be resistant to uh, talking about what his political views are because that could limit him later. Although he's already, he's probably already written his his opus here. You know, he's never going to have access like this again to anybody <laughs> in this position. So. Yeah, I think he really shot his wad on this. So. <laughs> Yeah, and good for him. I mean, if there's a time to do it, this was the time, I think. So. Mm-hmm. Let's see, what does it say next? Um, uh, it was out of some instinctive or idiot savant-like political understanding that Trump had made this issue his own about immigration, I think. In some of his earliest political outings, even before Obama's election in 2008, Trump talked with bewilderment and resentment about strict quotas on European immigration and the deluge from Asia and other places, end quote. His obsessive focus on Obama's birth certificate was, in part, about the scourge of non-European foreignness, a certain race-baiting. Who were these people? Why were they here? The Breitbart formula was to so appall the liberals that the base was doubly satisfied, generating clicks and a ricochet of disgust and delight. You decide, you defined yourself by your enemy's reaction. Uh, the real goal was to expose the hypocrisy of the liberal view. Somehow, despite laws, rules, and customs, liberal globalists had pushed a myth of more or less open immigration. It was a double liberal hypocrisy because Soto Voice, Soto Voce, uh, Italian again, Mm -hmm. the Obama administration had been quite aggressive in deporting illegal aliens, except don't tell the liberals that. Uh, People want their countries back, said Bannon. A simple thing. Bannon meant his executive order to strip away the liberal conceits on an already illiberal process. Rather than seeking to accomplish his goals with the least amount of upset, keeping liberal fig leaves in place, he sought the most. Why would you, was the logical question of anyone who saw the higher function of government as avoiding conflict. This included most people in office, 
the new appointees in place at the affected agencies and department, uh, departments wanted nothing more than a moment to get their footing before they might even consider dramatic and contentious new policies. Old appointees, Obama appointees who still occupied most executive branch jobs, found it unfathomable, unfathomable that the new administration would go out of its way to take procedures that largely already existed and to restate them in incendiary red flag and ad hominem terms, such that liberals would have to oppose them. Uh, he wanted to force liberals to acknowledge that even liberal governments, even the Obama government, were engaged in the real politics of slowing immigration, ever hampered by the liberal refusal to acknowledge this effort. Oh, I don't know. I think, I think there are plenty of people on the left who, I don't know, uh, are, you know, more than willing to blame Obama for lots of things, rightly or wrongly. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I wonder how much of this has been. Well, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, immigration flowed quite a bit under Obama and stuff, as as I know, uh-huh. as far as I know. So, well, it was basically at net zero by the time Trump took office from Mexico, yeah, anyway. But, yeah, but I don't know. It's a it's an issue. I, I don't know. It's an issue. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's a weird issue. I feel like I've worked at restaurants and stuff before where we had, you know, <clears throat> undocumented dishwashers or whatever. And like I don't know, they were just people we worked with. Mm-hmm. I mean. I don't know how much they were making. I don't know what their situation was. I don't know if you, you know, they had they had all the white people working in the front at the tables and stuff, and they had an Indian guy cooking there or whatever. But I don't know if you, what what, I don't know. I don't know the economics of it all. I don't know if you you know deport twelve million, which seems to be the accepted number. Mm-hmm. Deport twelve million. Low low wage workers. Uh, I don't know what that does to the real economy of everybody. And you know, frankly, uh, at the same time, like I don't know that it's a good thing that our entire economy is supported by something that is essentially illegal labor. You know, where people are getting paid less than they should be, and so forth for the work that they're doing mm-hmm. to artificially uh, reduce costs on the majority population. Well, talk to the business community who hires them, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a weird situation. Um, Very complicated. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, we can, I mean, we can talk to the business community, but at the same time, you know, every time we step into a grocery store and we go to the produce section we're basically subsidizing this industry right i mean true but if those people aren't there then they just the plants sit rotting in the fields and no one's there to pick them up because americans don't want to pay you know be paid such low wages to do such rack-breaking work so yeah well but i mean the thing is i I don't know I, i wonder if that would cause inflation or what that would do if you uh if you were charging the public 
you know, the real cost of harvesting fruit and vegetables, and it drives the price of that stuff up even higher, right? Mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, I mean, I mean, if the stuff is rotting in the field, then prices are going to go up if there's a shortage. And also, if you have to pay, you know, American citizens a minimum wage uh, to pick this stuff or maybe, you know, whatever you have to pay them, mm-hmm. I don't know what that does to the price of it either, but it's, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's a... Uh, it's a, it's a really, it's a complicated issue, and I'm not sure that, I'm not sure what the right policy on it is, but at the same time, I've, you know, I've been in some uh, immigration snafus in Korea, and I've seen other people who were good teachers who got deported because they, you know, they had a second job or something for a winter camp somewhere when they weren't working at their main job or something for a month, and they got caught, and they... You know, decent mm-hmm. people, Texans, women, who, what can I say, spent a week in jail in Suwon with a bunch of Koreans who couldn't speak English, mm-hmm. and then got sent out of Korea with no, with no chance to collect their shit from their house and stuff. You know, so I've, you know, it's, you know, it's not just an American issue, it's a... Uh, I've, I've seen it, you know, I've been on both sides. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that wasn't me. I mean, I've, you know, when you first come to Korea, for most people, you're working illegally for about a month hmm. before they get your visa stuff. And so you're technically an illegal, you know, whatever. I mean, a person's not an illegal, but you're working illegally mm-hmm. for the action. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, you know. If, I, if there was a country in the world where I could work much, you know, work hard, but make a hell of a lot more money than I could make in, back in America, I could send some of that money back to America. I mean, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, it's like, <laughs> why not? Yeah. But I don't know. At the same time, I think it is a kind of a, a thing that, you know, we kind of look the other way at the fact that these people, you know, Liberals are supposed to be on the side of, you know, economic progress, uh, you know, labor unions, uh, workers' rights. But undocumented, you know, people working illegally in the United States are the most, the people who have the least rights uh, in their workplace. And so I I do think it's, Mm -hmm. you know, while I don't want to see them rounded up and deported or jailed or, you know, families broken up and stuff like that, at the same time, like, the, the status quo is not necessarily a... I don't know. I don't know. Anyways, I'm uh, obviously I'm, you know, wrestling with that a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't see an easy solution from either side, and I, you know, I certainly don't think racism is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I was worried that was where you're going to end up. <laughs> so I've concluded yeah. that racism really is the answer. <laughs> yeah. What is uh? What is it uh? Wesley Willis said, Jesus is the answer. How about that? Yeah. (laughs) Old Wesley Willis, rest in peace. Yeah, absolutely. We're on the last two pages here. Let's let's finish up the Bannon chapter. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see. Process was their enemy. But just doing it, the hell with how, and doing it immediately could be a counter, a powerful countermeasure. Um, just doing things became a Bannon principle, the sweeping antidote to bureaucratic and establishment ennui. 
Uh, ennui, ennui, French word, right? Mm-hmm. And resistance. It was the chaos of just doing things that actually got things done. Or a corollary, because nobody in the Trump administration really knew how to do anything. It was there not clear what anyone did. Um, Priebus, as chief of staff, had to organize meetings, schedules, and the hiring of staff. He also had to oversee the individual functions of the executive office departments. But Bannon, Kushner, Conway, and the president's daughter actually had no specific responsibilities. They could make it up as they went along. They did what they wanted. They would seize the day if they could, even if they really didn't know how to do what they wanted to do. Bannon, for instance, even driven by his imperative just to get things done, did not use a computer. How did he do anything, Katie Walsh wondered. What was the difference between big visions and but that was the difference between big visions and small. Process was bunk. Expertise was the last refuge of liberals ever defeated by the big picture. Bannon got Stephen Miller to write the immigration executive order. Miller, a 55-year-old trapped in a 32-year-old's body, (laughs) was a former Jeff Sessions staffer brought onto the Trump campaign for his political experience. Except, other than being a dedicated far-right conservative, it was unclear what particular abilities accompanied Miller's political views. Um... Yeah. He was supposed to be a speechwriter, but if so, he seemed restricted to bullet points and unable to construct sentences. He was supposed to be a policy advisor, but knew little about policy. He was supposed to be the House intellectual, but was militantly unread. He was supposed to be a communications specialist, but he antagonized almost everyone. Bannon, during the transition, sent him to the to the Internet to learn about and to try to draft the executive order. Uh, um, and then they talk about the first attempt at the immigration order, executive order. Why did we, why did we do this on a Friday when it would hit the airport's hardest and bring out the most protesters? Almost, almost the entire White House staff demanded to know. Er, that's why, said Bannon. So the snowflakes would show up at the airports and riot. That was the way to crush the liberals, make them crazy and drag them to the left. Hmm. Huh. So that's the, that's kind of the conclusion of the chapter. So wow. it leads up to yeah the uh, I, I remember when that happened. I mean uh, you know the they were what did they they listed several uh, Arab countries mm-hmm. uh, that they wanted to restrict uh, people mm-hmm. coming from. Yep. And like people were getting like taken off planes when they landed and stuff, from what I remember. And immigration lawyers were showing up at the airport to represent them and protests and all this stuff. It was a big mess. And I, frankly, I can't remember what else was going on at that time, but I feel like there were, you know, two or three other sticks in the fire at that point, too, that were burning. Yeah, for sure. So, anyways, yeah. Yeah, it was a. Yeah, what a what a chapter. Yeah, just the chaos is the point is basically what I take from what Bannon said. You know, it's it's not that it's a good idea or that it's well executed. It's just supposed to drive the other side crazy. The the liberal tears taste so good that it doesn't matter how how they were squeezed. <laughs> yeah. Well, don't worry. 
will be drinking conservative tier cocktails when we take away all their guns. <laughs> <laughs> hey, for a minute there, it looked like it was going to be Trump that was going to take away their guns. Remember that? <laughs> He's like, I like getting the guns first, or whatever he said. <laughs> it takes so long to go to court to get the due process procedures. Uh, I like taking the guns early, like in this crazy man's case that just took place in Florida. He had a lot of fires. They saw everything. To go to court would have taken a long time. So you could do exactly what you're saying, but take the guns first, go through due process second. Yeah, boy, they had a. I bet, I bet the NRA whipped him back into his office and sat him down so fast his head, his hairpiece was spinning. You cannot fucking say that. You're going to backtrack right now, or we're going to shoot you right here. You don't think I got a gun? I'm in the NRA. I'm the president. You're going to be prying that toupee out of my cold, dead fingers. Yeah, wouldn't that be the greatest yeah. irony if the guns were actually grabbed by the one that they thought was just going to let them keep them? It's all parody, folks. It's parody. It's, it's, it's hilarious, hilarious jokes. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you listen to us for. Yeah, that's right. The humorous commentary. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, yeah, when, when do you think you can uh, record again? Uh, it may be possible this Friday okay. or possibly Saturday night. Um, last week I had a, I was hoping to do something on Friday or Saturday night, but I ended up having chicken and beer with some of my students on Friday night. And then mm. on Saturday I was watching a baseball game and drinking beer. And then now, you know, tomorrow I thought I had the whole day off, but it turns out I still have to go to the high school, but that's not until like 11 a.m. So I've got, I can sleep in a little bit. Mm. So I'm pretty cool about that. But, you know, this, I think this fever is going to hit either tonight or tomorrow, and it's going to be hell. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, seriously, probably Friday or Saturday night, one of those two nights, we can probably record again. So Cool. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get you back on a regular schedule and stuff, and I know, you know, you haven't had anybody else lined up for a few weeks here, so, you know. We'll do some. We'll do some episodes. Fill it in with the uh, with the book chapters here for a little while. Yeah, sweet. We're making progress. We'll be done with this book one day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think probably by his impeachment. We should. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll have to read fast or slow. I don't know how long that's going to take, but <laughs> yeah. By the way, um, what about? Uh, uh, What's his name? Cohen pleading the fifth after getting raided by uh, the Southern District of New York prosecutor's office or something. Man, there's a guy that's going down hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't be around Trump without absolutely dragging yourself through blood. No. Absolutely not. And this guy's like a fixer, too, so he knows, like, all the bodies are buried and everything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, we're going to be hearing him squeal probably pretty soon. Oh, yeah. What he's going to do. I don't know. It's, I mean, and they say Trump maybe, maybe you may or may not be able to pardon him or something. Whatever. I don't think you can pardon for state crimes, though. Hmm. That was what I, that was my understanding. You can pardon for federal crimes. And also, it's not always your advantage to pardon people that know stuff about you either, because then they can't plead the fifth anymore, because then there's no self-incrimination. 
Okay. Because yeah. then you've taken that yeah. away because you can't be incriminated if you've already been pardoned. So you have to answer the question at that point. Yeah. Boy, man, Mueller, is, he's playing 3D chess here. Mm-hmm. Although he's playing, it's a fucking slow game, which is bad. That's so, the only bad part, yeah. But I think, I feel like he's thought of these scenarios before, you know what I mean? So. Yeah. Yeah, I just think, like, as I've always said, I think every day that this guy's in office is potentially a disaster waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. And as bad as it's been, we've, we've, we've largely avoided, you know, I don't know. Every president gets tested, though. Mm-hmm. And we'll see when that comes, but uh, I think... If, if 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 a war kicks off, if something you know something major happens somewhere in Korea or Iran or Afghanistan or Iraq or I don't know Russia, who knows what's going to happen? But mm-hmm. history is not going to look kindly on people who are you know slow rolling this uh, this impeachment and this uh, this accountability for this guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think like. I mean, every day we're getting closer and closer to the P tape because, you know, it's like the only thing, it continues to be like the only thing that has not been definitively proven in the Steele dossier. And and Trump's like, Trump's denials don't even make sense anymore. And so it's kind of like, I don't know, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's, so, yep. I mean, and with the, uh, you know, with the, what can we say? I mean, with the stuff with the trade war with China, I don't know if that's on hold or what. I, we haven't been hearing about it too much lately, but, you know, them saying, like, they were going to put tariffs on corn and soybeans and stuff. Like, well, they specifically targeted states that Trump won with the tariffs. I mean, they knew exactly what they were doing with that. Yeah, well, I've got, I've got people, I, I know people uh, who are, you know, in that industry, <laughs> and I'd be fascinated just to hear what their... Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, sure, you could try and go the route of just blame China for everything, and you know, but you know, Trump could have known, and everybody's been saying it's a bad idea to start a trade war with China, but he went. He's the, he's the person who's got to touch the stove, right? <laughs> and so, I yeah, I'd be I'd be curious to hear what Trump voters who may be in these affected industries are going to be singing a year from now or two years from now if these tariffs go into effect mm-hmm. on the goods that they produce. In farms, on farms in the Midwest. So, I don't know. It, it's you know, <laughs> I don't know. As Shakespeare said, "All are punished," right? Mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet. So mm-hmm. we'll see what happens. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, on that note, I hope you feel better, dude. Yeah, yeah. You too. We've all got to get better from all this this stuff that ails us. Yeah, I got to get some vitamin C or something or some zinc. <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to finish eating this orange I started a couple hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's an epic orange you're working with there. It's a pretty large orange. Mm. A lot of vitamin C. Yeah. So. All right. Well, Bob, I'm glad we got one in. I'm sorry. I have no idea how the audio quality or my, my tone is going to be when this releases. But, uh, you know, I think we got an episode in the can there. And Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for doing it. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to getting some more in. So. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, well, we'll talk again very soon, okay? We'll try to get another one done within a week or two. Sweet. All right, well, have a good night. Yeah, all right. All right. Bye. Later. Later on. Bye-bye.
If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.